Thank you, worship team. That was beautiful. What a great way to start our time together. That didn't work. I'll just use this one. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to put this here. All right, let me do this. There we go. There you go. Beautiful. Well, now that I've broken something, it's a good way to start. There we go. Beautiful. Well, I'm delighted to be here. My name's Eric Tonis, and I have been walking with Jesus as long as I can remember. My mother, since I could hold my head up, would sit me on her lap and read the Bible and pictures for little eyes to my brother and me. And at some point, very early in my life, I became aware that I needed a Savior and that Jesus was that, my, that Savior I needed. And he has been the most important thing in my life as long as I can remember. Jesus is everything to me, and I'm deeply grateful for that. My life has had a lot of challenges along the way, and every time I've gone through anything, Jesus has been my comfort, my source of rest and hope and perspective, and I'm deeply grateful for that. I'm also the husband of Donna for 33 years. We met in high school, yay! We met in high school when we were 16, and... Yeah, we, we dated for a while, and then I actually when I started, when I met her, I moved into her high school halfway through my junior year, and I noticed her immediately across the hallway in the, senior, the junior corridor at the time in our high school, and I noticed her, and so I asked around. We didn't have social media back then. I couldn't stalk her online or anything like you can now, so you just had to ask people, which is what I did, and I, I asked around, and I found out she was seriously dating a guy named John. So, yeah, but uh, so I had to wait around for a year and a half before Donna finally broke up with John. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. And by that time, he was a good friend of mine. So out of respect to him, out of respect to him, I waited two weeks. And then I moved in. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Um, and so, and then we dated for seven years before we finally got married, and it's been a glorious 33 years. Don is a brilliant, funny, godly, creative, uh, amazingly patient woman that is the, the primary source of God's kindness and grace in my life on a daily basis. I'm so thankful for Donna. I'm the father of two daughters and two sons, and they are uh, just, I just love my kids deeply. And I'm thankful for them. 22, 19, 16, and 15 are my, my kids. So I, I love being a dad. And I'm also one of the pastors at Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada, where I get to be part of an amazing church family. And I'm also a professor, and I'm the department chair of theology at Biola University. So I'm deeply thankful for the wonderful opportunities God's brought my way, and being part of Hume is one of those opportunities I'm deeply thankful for. I love this ministry, and we've been partnering with Hume for, for about 20 years and are deeply thankful for this ministry. And at the heart of this ministry is a partnering with the local church, and that's one of the reasons I'm so thankful to be part of it, because you all know that temporary communities can be intense and meaningful but they, they can be short-lived. 
but when you just build on what's already been going on in the local church and have a meaningful temporary community experience and then you go back home to your life in that church context, that's when it has lasting value. And so I love partnering with Hume for that. It's a place where you have a lot of fun in about as beautiful places you can find on the planet, but with a solid biblical grounding that's been part of this place since its history started in 46, 1946. So I'm just so thankful to be part of this weekend. I love that you all have an interest in leading God's people in worship. That is a tremendous sacred privilege and I, I assume you all realize that, and that's why you're here. You want to think more deeply and understand better what it means to lead God's people in worship. There's nothing more sacred you could possibly do than that. You know, Jesus came and he fulfilled three primary roles. Anybody know what those primary offices or roles or functions he fulfilled right through the old covenant into the new? Anybody know what those are? Jesus came and he was the perfect prophet the perfect priest and the perfect king and a a prophet what does a prophet do a prophet stands before God's people representing God before the people a king rules and reigns and bring king brings kingdom realities into our reality and what does a priest do A priest sort of flips around what a prophet does. A prophet stands before God's people and represents God before people. Do you know what a priest does? A priest turns around and represents people before God and says, I'm going into the presence of God. Who's going with me? And and that's what these amazing musicians and worship leaders were just doing for us. They were going into the presence of God and inviting us to join them in that journey into the presence of God. And so... So there's nothing more sacred you could ever do. And obviously, if you're not heading into the deeper presence of God, you can't lead anyone somewhere you're not already heading. And so this weekend, we could talk about a lot of the details and a lot of the the specifics of worship leading, but I want to talk most of all about you because you will be the one who leads. You can be the most exceptional musician. You can have all kinds of ability to connect with people. You can have all sorts of upfront charisma and presence. But if you don't have a relationship with God and growing intimacy, you will never truly be able to lead people into His presence. You may be able to give them an emotional experience. You may be able to give them something they really enjoyed and loved taking part in, but you won't be able to lead them into the very presence of God Almighty if you yourself are not someone in relationship with Him in a growing intimacy. And so I I don't want to rush ahead of the fundamental realities of being worship leaders beyond who you are. E.M. Bounds said, who you are before God in prayer and worship is who you are. And you may have all sorts of people who think all kinds of great things about you, but if you're not in a relationship with God that's growing in intimacy, you can't be a worship leader as priests are intended to be. It's a tremendous privilege to be a priest. And, And when someone stands in front of God's people and says, let's go into the presence of the Lord, You've got to be in a place, your heart, your life, your mind, your relationship with God, your relationship with other people has got to be in a place that people can look to and find an example worth following. 
Now the Bible says that if you have something against a brother, don't go and offer sacrifice. You go deal with that first. See, that's getting at the point I'm making. Who you are, what your relationships with God and other people look like has got to be your primary focus. It can't be the things that are externally emphasized so often. It's got to be you. It's got to be who you are. And so I want to look at an incredible example of someone who had a relationship of growing intimacy with God. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 63. If you have options in a digital format, I am reading from the English Standard Version. But Psalm 63 has been so tremendously helpful to me in my life, in my relationship with the Lord. And I'm eager to dive in it together with you. This weekend, we are going to talk about four fundamental realities of who we are as those who seek to lead people in worship. And I hope you realize that worship is not just what we did before I got up, right? Worship is something that we're doing right now. The worship doesn't stop when the preacher gets up. I hope you realize that. Now, that's why even in our church, we call what we were just doing led beautifully like we were uh, sung corporate worship because we don't want people to think that worship is just the singing part, which is how most Christians think. They think worship, and, and even listen to the way people talk, but our lives are supposed to be worship. Our entire lives are supposed to be offerings to the Lord. Devotion to the Lord expressed in the way we use our computer mouse, in the way we use our money, in the way we use our sexuality, in the way we use our sense of humor, in the way we use our creative abilities or athletic abilities or intellect or whatever it is God's given you, you are to worship Him in the stewardship of those gifts. And so let's not ever reduce worship to just the singing part. Although I know that is, is what the focus here, and that's beautiful and that's vital. It's a, a huge part of what it means to worship. I don't want to minimize it either at all. I know I, I say to people, I, just, I talk to Christians who say, I, I don't like to sing. And I say, well, then why do you want to go to heaven? I mean, read the descriptions of heaven, and it's filled with singing praises to God. And it's not about having a good voice, you know, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It's beautiful. So, so of course, singing is an important part of it, but we've got to back up and say our whole lives are intended to be acts of worship to the Lord. I remember I was at a, an event at a Christian college where I was teaching in the Midwest, and, and someone announced we were going to have a wor- they said, we're going to have a worship time this Friday. And then the guy said, it was, a, it, was a, it was packed with all these college students, and he said, and it's just going to be worship, I promise. Just worship. And then he said this, there won't be a preacher for miles. And a big cheer went up. And, and that means they see singing as worship, but not what we're doing right now. When we open the Word of God, it's supposed to be worshipful inspiring worship. Please don't think the worship stops when the preacher gets up or when the service is over. We do this corporately to become people who worship God in the mundane traffic of life, in every part of our lives. 
so that when we then gather with God's people in sung corporate worship and in preaching of the word worship and in the Lord's Supper worship and baptism worship and the fellowship of the saints and all the things we do, it will have a vibrancy because our private lives of worship, our daily lives of worship, will come into the corporate setting and fuel it at a deeper level than it ever would have been otherwise. And so we are seeking to be people who are worshipers. And I love this example of King David as he is in the wilderness. Psalm 63, help us, Lord, now as we go to your word, we pray. Amen. Listen to David. Listen to the superscription, which is what the words before the psalm are called. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Very important location, not just uh, geographically, but location in the life of David. You might immediately think, okay, he's in the wilderness. He must have been running from crazy King Saul, right, before, um, before David became king. I actually think this is a time when David is in the wilderness, not running from Saul, but running from Absalom, his son, who wanted to take his throne and was trying to murder him to get there. You may have some family conflicts, but it's hard to imagine it's ever going to get this bad, that your son is going to try to murder you and take away everything you have. It's hard to imagine life getting much worse than that relationally. So he's in a desperate time, and it's, he's described as being in the wilderness. And this wilderness is actually where he is physically, literally. But there is a wilderness of soul that's even more significant in this setting. So he is desperate spiritually, emotionally, practically in his life. And listen to how he talks. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly... I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. All right, let's pause there. Well, then we'll keep going. But but just let's listen to what we just heard. He says, oh God, you are my God. So he's going to God in this place of desperation. And he's expressing a longing for God. He is expressing at the same time a satisfaction in God. So that means longing for God and being satisfied in God are not mutually exclusive. They actually always go together. The more you long for God, the more you'll be satisfied in Him. And the more you're satisfied in Him, the more you'll long for Him. And he expresses his trust in God. And so he expresses, I hope you noticed, a very personal relationship with God. Oh God, you are my God. It's personal. It's it's not just an objective God out there. It's not a God of the mere intellect. It's not the God of mere propositions and creedal statements, as helpful and as important as those are. He is the God who David says is my God. And then he says, earnestly I seek you. Do you hear the earnest hunger and thirst for God? That's what he says. 
He says he's hungering for God. He's thirsting for God. No doubt he's living in the wilderness, living off the land. He didn't bring enough supplies for this this journey in the wilderness. And so he is literally physically hungry and thirsty. But here he highlights a deeper hunger and thirst, and that's a hunger and thirst for God. As much as he wants food and water, he wants God. Even more, he feels that even more deeply. And so he says, I earnestly seek you. His hunger and thirst for God leads to a hunger for God, a earnest seeking of God. A true love and worship expressed in satisfaction and longing. He says earnestly. He has a desperate need for God. Earnest is a beautiful word. I love that word. And I I want to challenge and encourage and plead with you to seek to be and become more and more of an earnest man or woman. I believe earnestness is desperately needed, especially among the younger generation. I actually think it's uncool to be earnest. Do you know what it means to be earnest? It means to be really, really seriously pursuing meaningful things. You're getting after it. You're not playing around. You're not just living a, a, a TikTok sort of life, right, that's trivial, that's, that's just skimming along the surface. But I think earnestness is uncool these days. I think it's cool to be apathetic. And I think people are actually skeptical of people who are serious and intentional and passionate and earnest. That they're willing to get after it. And so apathy is a cool thing. Being cool and chill. And, and, and man, when I moved to Southern California, it, it was even higher than anywhere else I lived. I lived in the Northeast, in the Midwest. But Southern California is all about being chill, right? Some of you are from Long Beach, right? Where else is everybody from? Shout it out. Santa Ana. Santa Ana. So, so okay. Santa Maria. Where's that? Like an hour north of Santa Barbara. Oh, okay. All right. Wow. That's not fair. That's a little there. Um, that's amazing. Uh, right. So, so you understand what I'm talking about. There's this attitude that, that actually views people who are passionately, earnestly pursuing something as sort of needing to chill out. A little bit overboard. And there's a culture that we live in generally that, that is encouraging an apathetic approach to life. And it makes sense. If there's no God who's orchestrating everything to a glorious eternal end of everything, if you get disconnected from God and the things of eternity, what's worth getting passionate about? What's worth being earnest about? If it's not all adding up to a glorious reward and a well-done, good and faithful servant someday from your creator, then what's there worth really living for with earnestness? But David says, earnestly, I seek you. We live in a cynical culture. We live in a a culture of disbelief. We live in a culture of apathy. And I I call you, I challenge you, according to the scriptures, to be countercultural in this way. To never be embarrassed by your passion for Christ. Don't feel like you need to just sort of mellow out in your earnestness for God. In your seriousness of pursuing a relationship with Him. 
Engage, redeem the time for the days are evil, the Bible says. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't fear trying too hard or appearing like you really care deeply and passionately about God. Remember I went to my barber one time and I walked in and he's not a Christian. This was back in Connecticut. He's not a Christian, and, but he knows I am. And he said, hey, Eric, you'll never believe this. But a guy came in to get a haircut the other day, a teenager, and I knew he was dating a girl from your church. And I asked him what she gave him for Christmas. And he didn't want to tell me. And I said, come on, what'd she give you? He goes, no, no, friend, I don't want to tell you. And he said, come on, what'd she give you? And he said, all right, I'll tell you, but don't tell anybody. She gave me a Bible. And, and Franny said to the kid, What's, why are you embarrassed about that? He goes, I don't know. I don't really want people to find out. And Franny said to me, he's not a Christian. My barber said, Eric, isn't it amazing? We got it completely upside down. Guys come in here all the time enthusiastically telling me about how many girls they slept with in the past month and, and how drunk they got the other night. And, and, and they're really enthusiastic and confident about the lifestyle they've chosen. But this kid doesn't want to tell me his girlfriend gave him a Bible. He said, everything's upside down, isn't it, Eric? I said, yeah, I think it is. And, and so let's not let the world be passionate about sin. And we think we need to be chill about Jesus. Let's, in our daily lives, be more enthused about Jesus than anything else. If people listen to you talk, if people just watched you, what would they say you get most pumped about? Your favorite sports team? your favorite band, uh, uh, the, the, the hobbies you do, surfing. I mean, would Jesus be so obviously more meaningful to you? Would Jesus be what you're more passionate about than anything else when people watch your lives and listen to you talk? Let, let's, let's not fear earnestness. He says, earnestly I seek you. He's seeking God. And he goes to God. Look where he goes out of this earnest seeking. So he's hungering for God. He's thirsting for God. What does he do? What does he do? Verse 2. So, because of this deep earnest seeking, because of this hunger and thirst, what does he do? So, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. When you hear sanctuary, think about the set-apart place you worship God, seeking his holiness, seeking an understanding of who God is. He seeks God, so he looks upon God in his holiness. He beholds, that's not a passing glance, that's a fixed look, beholding your power and your glory. And now we get this avalanche of attributes of God. And if you want to know God, you need to seek God. Not all just the means to that, but, but God himself. So when you read your Bible, you go on a character of God hunt. When you pray, dwell in your thinking and in your praying on who God is. Not just the stuff you want from him, but who he is. You know, at our dinner table, I will often say, okay, kids, let's go around, and I'd like each one of you to say one thing you really admire about your mother. And they go around, and when they were little, it was amazing to me how utilitarian they were. In other words, they would say things like, I love mom because she helps me with my homework. I love mom because she makes us dinner. I, I love mom because she, she gives us rides places. And that's how little kids think, right? 
And I would even say to them back then, oh, I love that you appreciate these things mom does for you, but I hope someday you mostly appreciate not just what she does for you, but even more than that, who she is. And it's been really cool to see us be able to go around and say, I love mom because she's patient with me when I fail. I love mom because she, she's compassionate when I'm hurt. I love mom because she is giving and loving when I'm needy. They, they are now moving from just the practical benefits of mom to the character of who she is. And as worship leaders, what we want to do more than anything else with, our, else with our lives is pursue a knowledge of God himself, not primarily his benefits. You know, I, I, my kids love Christian radio, especially my son. Uh, he loves singing along with, with Christian radio. And, and so I've been listening to a lot of it lately because I give my son and his friends rides to work, uh, to, to, to school. And so funny, Sam... Sam can be very shy, but he's completely uninhibited about singing. I love that about him. He's a 16-year-old boy, but he'll belt out worship songs on the way to school with his friends in the back. And we found out that one of his friends, this young lady, was gossiping about him, saying, it's so annoying. Sam and his dad just sing all the way to school. Annoying? Goodness. And so, um, so but he, he sings. But, but I've, been, I've been listening to these songs on Christian radio. And... I'm concerned. I, so many of them are good, and I, I don't like bashing any of this stuff, but it seems like this, the significant majority are basically um, the storms of life are making me weak, and God is my strength. He provides for me in my times of need. And the Bible talks about that all the time. That's what's going on here. But, but what it seems imbalanced in is how much focus is on God himself, who God is. And you get the impression that God's main job is to help me out in the storms of life instead of to be God. And my valuing him is based on what he does for me when I'm in trouble only, not who he is. And so the character of God is where David goes here. Do you see what he says? He says, so I'm hungering, I'm thirsting. I'm in a desperate situation, of course, yes. But where does he go? He goes to God himself. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So we've got holiness, we've got power, which means God's able to do all his holy will. We've got his glory, which is a manifestation of the beauty of his perfections. And now we've got his love because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. See, true worship, true, its truest sense flows from an understanding, a beholding, an adoring, an appreciating of God himself. It's ascribing worth to him, worship. It's saying you are worthy. Notice we still haven't heard one benefit directly that David receives from God. We'll get to that in a bit. But the primary focus is on God himself. He goes looking for God. And so praise flows from an understanding of who God is, a beholding of who God is. God needs to be front and center. And what's the response? It's praise. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you. That's interesting. You can bless God. You know, somebody sneezes, you say, God bless you. God doesn't sneeze, although I'm sure Jesus sneezed. Maybe he still does. I'm not sure. He has a body, you know. Uh, but, but 
to bless God. It's an amazing thing. That, you know, worship is about blessing God. It is. It's, it's about bringing delight to God that he experiences when we delight in him. And so delighting is God, in God is the heart of worship. And we bless him. We praise him and we bring a settledness to soul in God himself. You know, our sin grieves God. And our worship blesses him. It pleases him. Now that's Christian motivation right there. To bless our creator with our worship, with our delighting in him. I will bless you not for a weekend, not for an hour service, not for a 20 minute set. Not when I feel like it. I will bless you as long as I live. My whole life will be an act of worship. My whole life will be praise. My whole life will be blessing you as long as I live. And in your names, I will lift up my hands in adoration and worship to God. It's just glorious. My soul will be satisfied as with fat, rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. What we have here is satisfied longing. He's satisfied in God. And now, for the first time, we get to the benefits. So far, it's been an expression of the longing for God, a focus on the character of God, and now and only now we get to the benefits. Verse 7, for you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. A beautiful description of satisfied longing. This is one of those strange paradoxical aspects of being a Christian. And as I said before, you long for God, and when you seek God and find Him, you're satisfied in Him, and that satisfaction intensifies your longing. So being satisfied in God does not negate longing for Him, it actually intensifies it. I mean, when you have a wonderful meal, or a delightful time of enjoyment with friends, even better, an enjoyment of friends around a meal, Do you leave that meal saying, that was so satisfying. I never need or want to do it again. No, you say, hey, let's schedule the next meeting, the next meal. Right? So so whether it's food or sex or recreation or deep fellowship or enjoyment or a walk in the beautiful nature around here, you come back from a walk around the lake saying, that was glorious. I'm going again tomorrow. And you long to do it again. Listen listen to this excellent quote by Jonathan Edwards, a man from my home state of Connecticut. You ready? Listen to what he says. Spiritual good is of a satisfying nature, and for that very reason, the soul that tastes and knows its nature will thirst after it and a fullness of it that it may be satisfied. And the more he experiences, and the more he knows this excellent, unparalleled, exquisite, and satisfying sweetness, the more earnestly he will hunger and thirst for more. And so as we grow in our satisfaction in God, we will grow in our longing for God. 
And what I want you to know as worship leaders and what I want you to know as you think about the people you lead is that very often, and I'm speaking from experience, I don't long for God. Very often I don't desire God. Very often I'm, I'm clueless to just how much I need Him. I wake up in the morning and I got a list of things to do and I charge into my day and God is not my first priority. God is not what I'm pursuing more than anything else. His glory is not what I long for to behold or to display. It's all the things I have to do that day. It's all my responsibilities and all, all the things I look forward to doing once they're done that aren't about God. But what I want you to realize is that to long, to long, a desire to desire is pleasing to God. And I think it's important for us to say, Lord, I don't desire you right now, but I desire to. I don't long for you right now, but I long to long for you. And I think God's deeply pleased with that. And, and listen to A.W. Tozer, this great pastor from the Midwest. Oh God, I've tasted thy goodness. And it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. And so let's acknowledge that there are plenty of times in our lives, even when we get up to lead God's people, even while we're leading God's people, we're going through the motions. And that's not necessarily a wrong thing. I mean, worship leaders have said to me before, don't sing this hymn unless you totally mean it. If that were the requirement for me to sing, I would never sing any song. And one of the reasons I sing is so that I believe the things I'm singing more when I'm done singing than when I started singing. Because worship is a way of not just expressing our delight in our belief, but deepening our delight in our belief. It's a spiritual discipline. It's not just what flows from your guts. It's something you commit yourself to so that you see God for who he is more deeply and feel the reality of that affectively and express it more genuinely. And, and so it's a spiritual discipline. It's something we commit to. I've never woken up once in the morning and, and been happy. I, I'm not one of those people. My wife is. Good morning. What's so good about it is how I feel. Right? And I'm not that kind of person. People say, oh, it sounds like a spiritual problem. I think it's just a blood sugar issue. That's all it is. I, I need some orange juice and I'll be okay in about an hour. So, um, but I never wake up happy. And so I have to get up really early because I, I teach some morning classes at Biola and I meet with people in the morning. So I have to get up really early and then I, I need to get the blood sugar checked. But then I need to spend time with the Lord. And I read my Bible and I pray, but I try never to leave the house before I worship before I open a hymnal or sing a, a song I know, that, that I get my heart revved up and, and softened and moved toward God expressing adoration to Him. I think devotions and quiet times too often don't include adoration and, and expressed worship. And singing is as good a way to do that as you ever can. It's really hard to sing when you're cranky, isn't it? There's something about it that softens the heart, that moves the heart, and, and, and it takes a, a desire to desire, and it makes it a desire. And God is so patient with us in this process. 
remember saying to a friend of mine once, he's a, an amazing musician. I don't know if you know his, Mike, his name's Michael Card. He's not as popular as he used to be, but check out Michael Card. But um, I said, you know, Mike, I bet about half the times I'm praying in the morning I fall asleep and I feel really guilty about it. You know what he said? He said, Eric, why do you feel guilty about that? And I said, well, because like if I was in the presence of, of a king or the president, I want to fall asleep. That'd be disrespectful. He said, no, wrong category. He said, do you think an old dog feels guilty for falling asleep at the feet of its master? He said, oh, I like that. I like that interpretation of my sleep. I thought it was just lazy. No, I, I love that. You're in the presence of God. You're communing with him. You're meeting with your Savior, and there is a patience he has for us in this process that we need to feel. And even as I'm exhorting you to be earnest, know how patient God is in this process. He loves history. He loves human history. He's been keeping it going for millennia, and he loves your history. And he's probably more patient with you than you are with yourself in your growth, in your desire to know and love him. And so as we seek knowledge of God and be satisfied in him, and we, as we desire to be satisfied, we, we see that desire is a God-given thing. One of the greatest lies Satan has ever cooked up is that desire is a bad thing, and so many Eastern religions teach this, that the nirvana, enlightenment, is the absence of all desire. That's a brilliant lie Satan cooked up to keep us from pursuing what God has given us in our desires, and that's him ultimately. And so we should be the most desiring people there are at passionately pursuing our desires being satisfied in God. And as C.S. Lewis said, our problem is not that our desires are too strong, but they're too weak. We trifle about with earthly things when the greatest things in God await. And so there's a God-centered pursuit of knowing God as he is, an all-consuming desire that leads to a consuming worship in life and in corporate gathered worship as well. And so we pursue God. We pursue his perfections. Listen to John Piper. The critical question of our generation, and for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness... And with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? If you don't feel a strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things. And there's no room for the great. And God must become for us infinitely more important to us than anything else. More important than anything this world offers more important than any accomplishment or any approval of man. We need to be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 16, you make known to me the paths of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this leads to an overflowing adoration of God that is the heart of being worship leaders. If your adoration for God is not overflowing out of you, how can you lead anyone else into that kind of worship for God? And so seek God earnestly. Go on a character of God hunt. 
Have a heart that longs for him, and when you don't long for him, ask him to give you a longing to long for him as a good starting point. And then we'll be able to say with the great priests in the history of God's people and the history of the church, who's going with me? I'm on my way into the presence of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to earnestly seek you. Our lives can be filled with so many trivialities, so many distractions, so many dilutions, but Lord, we long to long for you as David does in the wilderness. Lord, we're not physically in the wilderness, but spiritually we often are. And this world is such a wilderness in its fallenness. And so, Lord, give us, please, a realization that we need you desperately. No less desperately than David needed you in the wilderness. So, Lord, help us, please, to earnestly seek you. Focus on your character. Be satisfied in you. And lead others out of this satisfaction and this delight that we have in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.